One of the things that's useful and powerful about using a written liturgy is that it, it allows us to be free from ourselves in a certain sense. It draws us into this corporate space where we're doing something together. So it's not me standing, listening to a praise band and responding personally and uh, with other people sitting around me. It's me as, as one voice among many responding corporately. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the CPT Podcast. I'm Zach Wagner. The host for today's episode is Todd Wilson, and we're continuing our conversation with CPT fellow John Yates. Uh, If you didn't have a chance to listen to our previous episode, I encourage you to check that out for part one of our conversation with John. Today we're talking about Anglicanism, the Anglican tradition, liturgy, and liturgical forms of corporate worship, and the formative element, as well as some cautions with the recent trendiness, shall we say, of Anglican worship. Let's get right back into the conversation where we left off last week. And you left Cambridge and became an associate at a church in Pittsburgh, uh, if I remember, Good Samaritan. Um, tell us about that experience, about that experience, how that went. Yeah. So I, I served for about three years as an associate, um, at a church outside of Philadelphia called Church of the Good Samaritan. And, and I had, I, I'll just say, especially for those of you who are sort of considering academic research, trying to figure out this dual vocation. Um, when I was at Cambridge, I did, I worked as a chaplain, uh, at Clare College, which was my college. And so I had this pastoral role while doing my research. Yeah. And um that was because I wanted I, I wanted to to make sure that I was doing I, I was living into both aspects of this calling um insofar as that was possible. And and so having done that, which was a great experience, I then went into an associate role at a at a large suburban church and had a great experience there. And um and then after about three years, accepted a call to come down to Raleigh, North Carolina, to be the rector of Holy Trinity Anglican Church, and which was sort of a church plant, kind of. John, to describe your yeah. current ministry context and, and a bit of the history and, and how things are going so, now. So, Holy Trinity was uh, founded in two thousand four. Uh, it was it really it began as so many churches do in a living room with friends praying, and it was. Uh, Primarily, it was a group of uh, Episcopalians who were coming to terms with the the sort of the, the loss of orthodoxy within the Episcopal Church and trying to figure out what does it look like to be faithful within our Anglican heritage uh, when, when the established church around us or the institutional church uh, seems to have left, left us behind theologically. And uh, out of that concern and gathering for prayer week in and week out, um, a year later, a church was was planted, and it was lay led, which oh, um, wow. which is unusual to begin with, and very unusual within kind of our Anglican world. Yes, yeah, contend contend toward clericalism. Um, and so I, uh, the church was first led by um, uh, 
it was it was lay led for a year, and then um, a, a very good friend of mine, David Drake, came um, right fresh out of seminary, and he was joined by um, the late Michael Green, well known English evangelist. Yeah, um, and uh, and uh, they uh, co led the church for its first few years, and then I I, I came in as second generation leadership after about five years. Wow. And things are going well. Is that right? Yeah, they ministry are. It's, is going well. It's, um, <laughs> I think everyone who's experienced ministry during the pandemic will tell you that it's been a hard year. Yeah. Um, but, um, but we have, I've been here for a decade and we, uh, we were able to, during the economic downturn in 2010, we were able to buy um, a really strategic piece of land in the, in the center of downtown um, Raleigh. And we're then able to build a church building and convert a historic home into offices. And so um, we have this wonderful uh, facility and then a, a growing community of folks uh, mm. that are part of our congregation. That's marvelous. That's marvelous. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful, I think, John, you mentioned <clears throat> the first church building built in downtown Raleigh in the last 50 years or something like that. Isn't that right? I mean, it's a real, it's a real yeah. exciting kind of statement and testimony in the community in downtown Raleigh, a city center church, you know, getting going. Uh, yeah. Yeah. When you think about, you know, state, state capitals, sort of mid-sized cities, urban cores, um, there's just nobody's building churches. Yeah. Um, and to one, to have the opportunity to get a piece of land, which is so difficult. Um, and then to be able to build a church building, um, it was a significant thing and it, it was, um, and then the city recognized that it was significant. I don't think people knew quite what to make of it. Um, mm. and there was definitely the, you know, there were, there were definitely letters to the editor of the newspaper saying, why didn't they build a grocery store? That's what we really need in that spot. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, but uh, we, we were, we were just providing a form of nutrition with which that writer was unfamiliar. There it is. Yeah, there it I was going to say there's some, there's some resources in the gospels about true food <laughs> and truth drink or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> sounds, sounds familiar. Yeah. Yeah. As uh, yeah. So as uh, Thomas Cranmer, you know, the great architect of the prayer book, Archbishop of Canterbury describes scripture as the fat pasture of the soul. And uh, so there's nourishment oh, to be my. had for sure. Yeah. And, and, and let's pivot, John, and talk more about Anglicanism, right? I mean, there's this, the, um, uh, you grew up in the Anglican tradition um, uh, and have very strong, um, evangelical convictions or evangelical sensibilities and theology as an Anglican. Yeah. And, and I, yeah. I'm sure for some of our listeners, that's kind of a duh, no brainer, but for some of our listeners, that might be a bit of a head scratch. I mean, just talk to us about Anglicanism um, and, and your, 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 what you value and appreciate about the Anglican tradition and ACNA in particular, you could maybe uh, yeah. speak to that as well. Yeah. So the, so, um, just so the Anglican Church in North America, uh, ACNA is is only just about ten years old, and mm. it um, it is the uh, the kind of geo- it, 
it's uh, it was formed in the aftermath, really, of sort of the downturn in the Episcopal Church. So I was ordained in the Episcopal Church mm-hmm. um, and served in the Episcopal Church, and then eventually left to join the Anglican Church in North America. And um, so that's the the Anglican jurisdiction or, that I'm a part of. And uh, so I, you, when you grow up in a tradition, it actually becomes quite difficult to to say. Um, what what is you know what you love about it most yes, because yes. it's what you it's it's where you're brought to maturity um, or brought up. But I would say you know I think that what people find attractive about Anglicanism is also uh, what what kind of keeps me going in a lot of ways. And mm. and and I think it's more than anything is it um, is this persistent insistence on the essentials of the faith yes so our our kind of core confessional document is called the 39 articles first drafted in the uh 1540s by thomas cranmer and um it's the shortest of all the confessional documents coming out of the reformation it's the most succinct and and the anglican sort of anglican culture formed in that document is let us put the essentials of the faith um, uh, above everything else and insist on them. And then let's seek this. Um, uh, let, let's seek to be intentionally grace filled on secondary matters. Mm. And, and so you know, those of you who've been around Anglicans, you, you know, you can see, you can see perhaps, Hopefully that this is a strength. You can also will also know where this can be a weakness. Um, but it's that sort of gospel essentialism of the articles yes. that is is really refreshing to people. Then there's the the um, I would say the historic rootedness um, that's seen really most in our liturgical worship. There's this you know we we worship in a form that's constantly changing as necessary with time and language, but that's rooted in, in structures of worship dating back prior to the Reformation. Um, and so there's that historical rootedness. And, and then I would say that the third piece is um, the, the, global, uh, the, na- the global nature of the communion of which we're a part. Um, yes. So the Anglican yeah. communion, I think it's about 80 million people worldwide. Um, if you were to, to post a picture of the average Anglican, it would be an African woman. Um, mm. And so we're, we are, by virtue of our, um, our history and our heritage, we have this global communion that we're a part of. And it, and it, it, it forces us into this, what you might call a generous orthodoxy, as you have so many cultures and traditions and languages languages yeah um joined together in this one community yeah i was i'm particularly struck by what you said about the rootedness that goes back to before the protestant reformation um, yeah and not many yeah and not you know how many quote-unquote protestant christian traditions can claim a robust rootedness like that um and that's and, and you know the gets back to the Church of England and the history of the 
English Reformation and uh, mm-hmm. you know half halfway Reformation, all these sorts of things. But I found that I found that very striking just even listening to you talking just then. Yeah, there's. I think we we forget that you know, that for especially within the English Reformation, it's not this wholesale cutting off of the past. Um, nor yeah. is it just this excuse for Henry to move on from wife to wife. Um, the English Reformation, mm. it, it, in the hands of Cranmer and others, it's um, you know when he when he writes the initial version of the prayer book in 1549, he's mostly taking older Latin liturgies translating them, simplifying them, ridding them of what he sees as heresy, um, magic, and uh, unnecessary Mm. um, uh, tradition, and trying to uh, clean them up so that the the message is gospel-centered and and thoroughly rooted in Scripture. Mm. And so you get the prayer book is really, it's, um, there's, there's, of the work Cranmer does is not, not much of it is purely original. Mm, yes. And John, how does that shape the worshiping life of your congregation week to week? I, 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 I trust in your, in the Anglican tradition and the resources you're drawing on, you don't do four songs and announcements and then a sermon. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I would imagine it's a little more complicated than that. Yeah, so we we um, so the prayer book tradition, the English prayer book tradition, begins in 1549, and there uh, it's revised and and revision is anticipated and built into this tradition of worship. So it's it is never intended to be a fixed or static form. Mm. Um, so in the ACNA Anglican Church in North America, we we have a, a prayer book that we recently published in 2019, and um, all Anglican prayer books kind of root themselves in the 1662 book of common prayer as kind of, that's sort of the standard. And uh, when a prayer book is, is revised or translated, um, adapted for use in a certain context, um, it's meant to uh, be coherent with um, the theology and structure and, and service order of the 1662. So we, we follow, um, the service of Holy Communion out of our prayer book. We follow the service of morning prayer. Um, so it's a structured liturgy um, where pr- most everything is written in advance for us. Um, we, uh, we're a church that sings a, a mixture of music um, from kind of you know, not encompassing all ages and styles, but a fairly um, broad uh, diversity. And, um, yeah, that 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 approach to worship definitely shapes the people. Yeah, tell us about that and and how that's worked out in your congregation and what you see the impact of that being in the lives of of your congregants. Yeah, I I think um, I think one of the one of the things that's useful and powerful about using a written liturgy is that it it allows us to be free from ourselves in a certain sense. Mm. Um it draws us into this corporate space where we're doing something together. So it's not me standing, listening to a praise band and responding personally and uh, with other people sitting around me. Um, it's, it's, it's me as, as one voice among many responding corporately. 
Um, yes. So it takes a fa- it it it, um, it militates against the, some of the hyper individualism of our culture and our way of being. Um, yes. And it, it roots us historically with you know with the saints of of many many centuries and uh, and we you know we join in with the same prayers that are being prayed you know, around the world in different time zones and different languages that day. So there's this strong corporate element. Mm. Um, and I'll say just real, real quick, militating against hyper-individualism isn't something the Protestant church broadly construed is especially strong on. Like <laughs> right. the, the roots, uh, right. the roots of individualism, you know, one could historically argue are precisely in Western Protestantism. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's uh, you know, we t- already have talked about this kind of halfway thing with Anglicanism, but uh, that's significant, it seems to me, that there's a built-in, um, a, a built-in kind of anti-individualism that maybe that's say, is, is saying too strong, but something that forms us in another direction uh, as yeah. worshipers. Yeah, I think there's there's two there's two related pieces for me that so one of the things that I like about a liturgical service is that um it's not just structure. It doesn't just provide structure. It actually hmm. it actually shapes a narrative. Wow. And it, and 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 so uh, our communion service, our morning prayer service, it it takes you from point to point to point and and it and it enfolds you into a story that is rooted in the gospel and in scripture. And so it, it, it protects against this sort of spont, 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 the need to have a spontaneous emotional reaction. Mm. Um, and it protects against you know, so often we come into worship and we're just spent, tired, <laughs> yes. discouraged. And, and to have to sort of generate uh my own personal emotional reaction to four praise songs or to a 45 minute sermon. Um, it can be, um, it can be kind of defeating and debilitating yes. because it rests so much on me and my response. Whereas if I'm given good words to say, if I'm enfolded into a narrative, um, there, there's a, there's a work of grace that takes place there that says, Hey, you know what? Ultimately this is not up to you. Um, this is the, the completed work of Christ you're being drawn into as a believer. Mm. So there's something particular, uh, there's a particularly reformed approach to the worship, um, that I value. The other thing I'll just say is that, um, and what so many people I think don't recognize is that, that one of the great strengths of the liturgy is it gives us scripture. So, in a mm. traditional Anglican service, you'll have an in every service you'll have an Old Testament reading, a Several New Testament. Readings, yeah. You'll have a New Testament reading. You'll have a reading from the Gospels. You'll have a, a Psalm, um, and then so much of the language of the service itself is just sort of riddled with scriptural quotation and allusion. Mm. Yes, and. Um, and so, you know, I've heard I've heard somebody a couple of years ago um, described our church and another kind of Bible church in town say, well, that church has the Bible and, and then the Holy Trinity has the prayer book. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, I was like, really? Like, have you yeah, ever yeah. been to an Anglican service? I guarantee you there's more Bible in our service than in that service. Yeah. <laughs> I, got, I got a little defensive. You know, that happens. <laughs> but the point is worth the point, John, the point is worth I, underscoring John sorry Zach, let me yes. just say the, the point is worth underscoring the the Anglican liturgy when done well I mean you, the invitation there for the worshiper is to step into a scriptural world yes, right yes. it's being yeah. as it were created through the liturgy um, yeah. which is which is profound and and formative yes yeah yeah. John, I wonder, I, I mean, not by any means to downplay many of the strengths of kind of the the liturgical rhythms of uh, the Anglican tradition in particular and other more middle to high church uh, traditions. But I wonder if you could comment something, th- this is a bit of a hobby horse of mine, maybe that's overstating it, but just a dynamic that I have noticed yeah, as a millennial um, who grew up in evangelicalism, and uh, I've I've been at, at Bible college and Christian liberal arts school, and something I've noticed among my peers that I colloquially call the allure of sexy Anglicanism, mm. and by that I mean. Um, <laughs> This this dynamic where people who grew up in low church traditions are kind of pulled away from their own worshiping communities towards a, a higher church model. And this is what people talk about, the liturgy, mm-hmm. the liturgy, mm-hmm. the beauty of the liturgy, and often not in much more sophisticated terms than oh, the liturgy is so beautiful. I love liturgical right, worship, right. this or that or the other thing. Um, and uh, maybe I'm sounding a, a little defensive. If I am, maybe it's because I, maybe it's because I am. Um, but uh, I, no, this is so important. Yeah. Yeah, because maybe it's just like the kind of anti-trendiness of it. But I think yeah, like yeah. Anglican worship for millennials has been tr- very trendy for about yeah. 10, 12 yes. years or something like that. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I kind of use the Anglican tradition. Um, m- maybe that's the most common instance of this, but it just goes to everything. Like, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I-, I think, uh, yeah, just my generation um, will abandon not just forms of worship, but churches over this kind of stylistic Mm-hmm. preference mm-hmm. as I see it. Um, and I want to kind of have that conversation in context of everything you just, we've just yeah. been talking about, about yeah. the rootedness and the scripture and the story and uh, all, all and the, and the, uh, the corporate uh, connection to the worship of the saints. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've heard people talk in similar ways about Eastern Orthodox worship mm-hmm. Um and uh, yeah, just just kind of comment on that. Uh, and I'm curious, what do you see as um, perhaps you know exciting and encouraging about that mm-hmm. kind of generational shift, but also cause for maybe some caution or clarification or um, 
yeah, or, or yeah. help, I suppose. Yeah, I, w- I mean, I would say, first of all, that um, <clears throat> there are lots of evangelicals of all ages kind of coming out of a free church, Bible church tradition, who, when they encounter Anglicanism or, or Anglican worship or a community where um, where you're worshiping within this prayer book tradition, it is, you know, what, what they're experiencing, it's tapping into these deep needs, um, mm, this, yes. this, this need for, for some kind of structure, you know, because yeah. the, the, the individual consumer model is just oppressive. Um, there's a need for tr- structure. There's a need to be rooted historically. It's, it's, it, we didn't go from early church to today. Um, right. Um, so there's all these things that are, that are drawn into, which I think are a sign of hunger and and a desire for a more robust kind of lived out faith. Um, so it makes sense to me that people would be drawn in. But I'll say, you know, I am right there with you, Zach. The sort of t- Anglican trendiness is a little bit mm. unnerving to me. I mm. mean, no, like n- never has Anglicanism been considered sexy. I mean, yeah. you, know, you you look at the depiction of Anglican clergy in all English period pieces, all, you know, the the BBC dramas, and the, like they're they're the clergy are always kind of idiots. So mm. to be like the sexy, the, like like the attractive kid on the block is a, is an odd position to be in as an Anglican. Mm. Um, but I'll say, I will say, um, what disturbs me most is. Um, people get attracted to Anglican distinctives and, and they honestly, I mean, the, the, this is the, the term I use is, is that they fetishize yeah. um, aspects of our worshiping life or corporate life. And what happens in this transition often is that people move. Um, they, they, they emphasize the distinctives of Anglican identity uh, at the expense of of the fundamental gospel essentials of our mm. Anglican faith, and um, and it becomes kind of a way station on the way towards this kind of custom crafted historical liturgical um, theological softness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I, um, I get a little nervous when I encounter young Baptists who love the liturgy. Yeah. Cause I'm like, honestly, I really just care about whether you love Jesus. Mm. Um, and if, if you do, uh, then the liturgy is going to be great. But if you're looking for something in the structures of this tr- tradition, um, apart from the essentials of the faith, you're just going to end up, lost and disappointed yeah, uh, wow. at the end. And so, and that's where, you know, something you know, with the, the 39 articles being this, you know, concise gospel essential confession of the faith. That's where I want to point them. I'm like, go, yes. like c- come back to the core. Um, I'm really glad you love the liturgy, but the liturgy is just a tool. Mm. Um, it's a tool to draw you into the gospel. And and once the liturgy becomes something more, you've lost sight of what really matters. Mm. That's a great, John. That's a great word, and a, and uh, 
uh, encouraging and challenging at the same time. It, 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 with a few minutes we have left, John, just to pivot or broaden, zoom out, uh, and and have you prognosticate for us a bit. Where where is Anglicanism going in North America? Would you say, John? And its relationship yeah. with Episcopalianism and ACNA in particular. I mean, just I know this is mm-hmm. a is a podcast episode in its own right, but but just sort of brief thoughts. Are you are you optimistic and hopeful? Are you anxious? Tell tell us how you how you see the next ten plus years unfolding for Anglicanism in North yeah, America. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's early twenty twenty one, so it's hard not to be a little anxious about everything. Um, <laughs> Fair after the last year. <laughs> I think if I could paint a picture of sort of joyful um, success, quote unquote, um, kind of looking out ten years, then then I would say that that Anglicanism in North America has been a part of recentering evangelicalism, mm. um, and beautiful, and returning us to the core essentials of the gospel faith and the identity of the church um, pulled us away from power politics, um, drawn us out of a culture war mentality into a much more of a kingdom uh, driven sense of mission. And that um, being rooted in this historic and global community with structured worship that pushes back against consumerism and individualism um, has created space for us to do that more broadly within evangelicalism. So that would be my great hope. Um, (laughs) That's a beautiful vision, John. I love that. (laughs) And I think the, the, the concern is that um, we are, we're, we're a bunch of fallen, broken men and women uh, seeking, seeking to make this happen. And so, um, the church, you know, no matter what your tradition, once you you look under the hood of church life, it's messy and difficult. Yes. Um, and so, but but that would those would be some of my hopes for the future for us mm. and and for the church more broadly within North America. Well, may it be, Lord Jesus, may it be. That's 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 a great vision, John, and and uh, your. You are not to throw bouquets of flowers at you, but you're, you've got a, a, I think, an important part to play in helping shape that future for Anglicanism in North America. And uh, thank you for your friendship with us and the CPT. And thanks for being on the podcast today, bro. This has been really, really good. Well, it's fun to be be a part of this. Thank you for having me. Thanks, John. Thank you for listening to this episode of the CPT Podcast, a theology podcast for the church. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider throwing us a like, sharing the podcast online, subscribing, leaving a review. Uh, Anything like that would go a long way towards helping other people hear about the podcast. Uh, The CPT Podcast is a ministry of the Center for Pastor Theologians. You can learn more about the CPT by visiting us at pastortheologians.com. You can also find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our host for today's episode was Todd Wilson. Our producer and editor was Trenton Jones. Our music was composed by Andrew Gerlicher. I'm Zach Wagner. Thanks for listening.